All right, hey, we are in 2 Kings 17. Um, let me explain what we're doing. We're almost done with this. We are doing this series, Prophets and Kings, and this has been a way for us to really um, go through the scriptures with the mindset and mentality that it's not just random stories, that even though there's a bunch of stories in the Old Testament, it's telling one meta story, one meta narrative. And ultimately, every story, as Jesus said, the scriptures testify of me. We want to find these gospel elements or these gospel threads throughout the Old Testament. And so we're looking at the prophets and kings as a way for us just to see the story of Jesus in some way, the gospel in some way uh, in these books. So we are currently in 2 Kings 17. We started this like a year and a half ago in 1 Samuel, went through 2 Samuel, then 1 Kings, now 2 Kings. We'll be done with this by mid-August. Can you believe it? So crazy. Um, Here's where we're at today. I'll just kind of give you, this is where we're at. We are looking at the end of the northern kingdom of Israel today. The northern kingdom is called, I said it, Israel. The southern kingdom is called. Now, just so you guys know and see the big picture, because it is so important, I do believe. Obviously, God's heart and original intent was not for the kingdoms to split. If you guys remember, Saul being the first king, he was the people's choice. David is God's choice. After David came his son Solomon, and then after Solomon, it's split into two kingdoms. It only lasted like three generations and then split. Because of Solomon's sin, and then also because of, of his son, Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam, because of their sin. So the kingdom split. So here's the idea. Remember, after Solomon, Jeroboam went to the north. God actually had really, like, he called out Jeroboam. He had an opportunity to make the northern kingdom of Israel about God. And said right away he adopted pagan idols. And we're going to see that ever since then they followed that trend. I just want you to see this. Today we'll be looking at the last king. His name is Hoshea. We'll be looking at the last king of Israel. And this is so sad. I mean, they had the chance to like actually have a kingdom dedicated to God with Jeroboam. God's like, Jeroboam, you have the opportunity to worship me, and yet he didn't. And he kind of set the stage or legacy for every king after him. Notice, in the northern kingdom of Israel, there was never once one good king. There just wasn't. It's just countless evil king after evil king. Now, in the southern kingdom, we were looking at that last week. We'll be jumping back into that next week. But in the southern kingdom, what we're going to look at next week is this guy named Hezekiah. There's going to be a beautiful revival in Judah, in Jerusalem. God's going to really use this guy. But right now, it's Hoshea in the north, and then you're going to have Hezekiah in the south. And if you can put it up here, just so you can kind of see the, the list of the kings, we're going to see that the kingdom of Israel actually falls about 130 years before Judah. So the kingdom of Israel, just so you guys can see this, this is what our text today. Israel fell in 722 BC. We're going to see that Judah and Jerusalem, it fell around 587 or 586 BC. So we're going to see the southern kingdom next with Hezekiah. There's going to be some more wicked kings, some good kings, um, but they have 130 more years than Israel. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is um, today there is a lot of history there's actually a lot of like, if you ever heard of like the Samaritans and how, where do they come from? We're going to kind of see that actually unfold from our story today. This is more of a, of a history kind of lesson of what happened in the north, but there is a lot of application as well. And so my hope is not just to have this be filled with history and here's what happened and here's how they fell, um, but here's what I want us to see because we have to learn from this. Sadly, like Israel's epitaph, like on their tombstone would just be they fell into idolatry. If you're like, how did Israel end? How did Israel die? Like, well, how did Israel just lose it all? Just constantly fell into idolatry. And it says they also lacked the fear of the Lord. And so that's really what we're going to see. Um, we have to see this is not like today in 2023. It's very similar. How does someone fall uh, either away from the Lord or left their first love, as the scriptures say? 
so often we fall into idolatry or we just stop fearing God. So I do want to read this with the lens like God teach us. I want to understand this. But God said to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14, he goes, Jeroboam, this is going to happen. Your people are going to be taken away past the Euphrates River. They're going to be led into captivity. Remember, the Assyrians are the ones who took Israel. The Babylonians took Judah. And now we're starting to see the kingdom. It's been fractured. Now we're going to see just basically after this, Judah's left. That's it. It's only been Judah for a while. So I wanted to spend some time on today because this is the end of Israel, the northern tribe, the 10 tribes, the 10 lost tribes. This is the end of Israel as we know it. And again, I just hope this has been helpful in some ways. Like I know that you, like maybe like me, you can read the Old Testament and you're like, there's so many kings. Who's in the north? Who's in the south? I don't even know there's a north and south. What the heck is going on? Um, I hope in some ways it can give you a framework because I really do believe that God, when, when you read now Amos, Micah, Isaiah, these different minor prophet or major prophet books, you see how God, when his message to them was so filled with compassion, so filled with grace, so filled with justice um, because God has been so good to walk through them time and time again throughout the rebellion. And I just don't want to lose sight of like, God, you are still so faithful to this day. And so my hope and desire is just that we'd have a heart posture to learn from this. This is not just history, that God still wants you and I to benefit from the story of Israel. Um, even though they failed, we don't have to. And so why don't we do this? It's a longer chapter. We have 41 verses or something. Why don't we pray and then we'll read the text. Cool? You guys good? You guys all right? Good morning, welcome. The sound uh, booth guys were looking at my notes and they're like, this is gonna be kind of a sad today. I'm like, yeah, please don't say that. Um, it's just the tragic end of Israel. And there's not a lot of positive things here, but there's a lot of things we can learn from. Yes? Let's do Let's pray. Father, we just wanna thank you again. It is a privilege for us to be here, to open your word, to look to you. God, I just ask that you would speak. I ask that you bring clarity of thought. Lord, there's so much going on. We, we read in, in these short verses hundreds of years of things that have happened. And we just ask that Jesus, through your spirit, you would bring application, that you would bring life transformation. God, help us not repeat the sins of our fathers. Help us not just forget you. Um, Lord, I ask that we would truly learn from um, how Israel ended. Um, Jesus, I just thank you for the people here. They're yours. God, I ask that there would be hearts in this room that are not divided, that are solely focused on you, that we would not serve you and something else, but that, Jesus, you would take your rightful place in our lives. And we just want to thank you in your name. Amen. You know, there are certain verses in the Bible that maybe like you, when you read them, they just kind of throw you off. There are a lot of verses I'm reading, and I'm like, why did he go in that direction? Um, in 1 John, 1 John, and it, this is true, 1 John is my favorite l a book or a little epistle. It's just my favorite epistle in the New Testament. I love 1 John. It's like, here's God's love. Here's how to live in, li in light of God's love. It is unbelievable. John is an older man when he wrote 1 John. It's believed he's around 90 to 100 years old, almost like this grandfather of the church. And he's telling them, little children love one another. You know, it's just picture that a grandfather type. Like, come on, guys, love each other. This is what it means to be the follower of Jesus by your love for one another. You kind of hear that heart. And what is so bizarre to me is how 1 John ends. He's like, love God, love each other. The very last verse in 1 John 5, 21 is, little children, keep yourselves from idols, amen. It is the most random thing to me. When I, when I first read that, I'm like, oh, love, loving God, loving others, so beautiful. God's love for me, it transforms me. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, amen. You're like, huh? What is that? What are you doing there, John? It is weird. Like, imagine I was doing a teaching on repentance and, like, why it's so important to repent. And I'm like, in conclusion, get your tires changed and always have your cats and dogs spayed or neutered. And you're like, what? Bob Barker? Huh? Like, it doesn't make sense. You'd kind of go, like, that ending doesn't kind of fit the theme. 
So here's honestly something I've been really thinking about, because that, that phrase for a while, I'm like, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I will say this. I believe now more than ever, it is so, it is so important to First John. Like, it is not as strange or bizarre as I first thought it was. He's basically saying you're either going to love God or you're going to love idols. He's saying there's going to be a battle of loves in your life, always. There's always going to be this battle for what's taking the place of your life. Either God is your first and supreme love, or there's idols that take the place of God. It's bizarre because I know we don't use that language or terminology a lot of idols, but this is the story of Israel. This is the story of Solomon. This is the story of the church even, as we'll see in the New Testament. There's, either, there's this temptation to love God supremely above all, or to just love something that is man-made or love something the world has offered. That's why when John says, you cannot love the Father and love the world. You can't, you can't. You love God supremely above all, or you're loving an idol. And so here's what I want to do, because I really do think this is the story, sadly, of Israel. This is how Israel ended. And again, it sounds so bizarre to us. Um, Here's the thing. Idols aren't always bad things, a lot of times there are good things that God created, but those good things become a God thing. And that's what an, what an idol is. It's when a good thing becomes an, a God thing. Meaning God created marriage, God created relationships, God created sex, God created beautiful things. But when you elevate that to the place of now, this is the supreme thing I am worshiping. God created work. There's some things that are good, but they can take the supreme place in our life, and then God takes a second or a back seat. I think this is so important for us to learn because Israel's sin, which led to their downfall, was basically giving themselves over to idolatry over a long period of time. And I, I think it's important. I, I've mentioned this before. There's a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. So profound. He says this in his book. He says, uh, an idol, because we have to identify what is an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It's like, should you lose that thing, you feel like you just lost your life. Like, if I lost this, life is, might as well be over. That's, your, that's a, this, the thing you're supremely worshiping. And so um, you guys know this, and this is just important for us to talk through because I don't want us to read this and go, this, is, this happened to them. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. If you've ever traveled somewhere, or it's funny for me, but when I go back home to California, it's very easy when you walk maybe into a new culture or like you've been somewhere for a while and you walk into like a new area and you can begin to see what people value, what they worship, what they spend money on. And it's very, for me even now, like when I go home to California, I'm like, it's so clear to me at least, like what a lot of Southern California idols are in people's hearts. For them, it's just they're, they're normal. Just like in Florida, I feel like we just kind of have our normal idols we have adopted, we love, and we almost don't even know now they're idols. We don't even know now. We've put them on this high pedestal. It's very easy for someone to walk into America and be like, oh, I know what you guys value based off how you spend your time, your money, what you talk about, what excites you. It's really easy for us to identify idols in others, but it's really hard to identify in our own life. And I think this is what we have to be aware of. You guys know this famous quote, and I'll say it. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. I so agree. Like my heart is constantly, as soon as I think I conquered one sin, a new sin takes that throne. And it's just very bizarre how like we can, we're so quick to have a new idol take the place in our life. Um, And this is the thing. This is the first command essentially which God gave. God's like, hey, you shall have no other gods. But this isn't the supreme number one command God gives a man. He goes, have no other gods beside me. I don't want to battle for your soul like that. I, I want to be number one and, and the only one. 
This is it. Blaise Pascal said this. He said, there is nothing so abominable in the eyes of God and of men as idolatry, whereby men render to the creature that honor which is due only to the creator. God's like, man, I hate, I hate it. I despise idolatry. You're, you're giving value to something when it needs to be only to and for me. And again, this is actually the, the battle within the New Testament. So I'll be really clear on this. It's not like, oh, the Old Testament struggled with this. Uh, here's what I love. There's a few churches in the New Testament that stand out. If you guys know the Corinthians, Paul's like, yo, I got to write two really long books to you because you guys are just messed up people. Uh, to the Thessalonians, there's shorter books. And Paul, a lot of times, just, he's just praising them. Like, good job. Look what you've done. Here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. He says this. He goes, I'm, he's, he's encouraged them saying, good job, well done. You've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He's like, this is your reputation. You've turned to God from idols. Hey, you used to serve other things, but now you serve the one true God. You used to have those things rule over your life, but good job. This is your reputation. You don't serve those things anymore. Like there's been a radical change. If you want to know how someone's been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus, it's not just believing the right things. It's not just acting a certain way outwardly. Here's how you know someone's radically been changed. They've turned from one thing to the living and true God. That, that repentance is not just an idea, like, I repent, I'm sorry. But it's, no, no, you're going to see in everything about me, my life is completely changed because I'm now serving the one true God. Spurgeon said this about the Thessalonians. He says, everybody asks, why? What has happened to these Thessalonians? These people have broken their idols. They worship the one God. They trust in Jesus. They are no longer drunken, dishonest, impure, contentious, Everybody talked of what had taken place among these converted people. Oh, for the conversion, or oh, for conversions plentiful, clear, singular, and manifest, that so the word of God may sound out. Our conference are, are, are our best advertisements and arguments. The best argument, he says, for Christianity is someone who's turned from an idol to God. He says, no, 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 God, you are the supreme being. Like, I give you all the glory. So here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this nation of Israel, which they, didn't, they weren't like the Thessalonians they gave themselves over to these idols. I mean, any sort of idol from any sort of region they just adopted. So two things, what led to their downfall? Uh, we're gonna see this, they loved idols and they lacked fear. They loved idols and they lacked fear. Please hear this. Someone who usually left their first love, walked away from God, they love something other than God more and they don't have the fear of God anymore in their life. Usually people who I've met who deconstruct their faith, there's something they love more than God and there's usually a lack of the fear of God. There's no reality of who it is you're walking away from. And so you lack the fear of the Lord, and you love something more than the Lord. So let's just break that down. Can we do that? Number one is this, loving idols. Uh, let's just pick up. First Kings 17, let's kind of get to know the context. Here's what's going on. First Kings 17, verse 1. Let's read about Hoshea. It says this, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. That was their capital. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the, of the Lord, yet, notice that, yet, not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his, uh, his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to uh, so, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. 
All right, really quick before we just get, get some context. Hoshea, he seems to be an evil king just like all the other evil kings. It makes that really clear, yet not like the kings before him. Uh, Hoshea, by the way, it means salvation. That's what his name means. It means salvation. All right, so in some ways, you're like, this is the guy. All right, Hoshea actually had a good idea. He's like, you know what? I'm kind of done um, bartering with the king of Assyria, but he had the wrong mindset just like every other king before him. Rather than going to God, he's like, I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to go to them for help. Maybe they'll help me with the Assyrians. Again, that was a bad choice. He doesn't go to God. He goes to the Egyptians for help. The king of Assyria finds it, throws him in prison, and then we're going to see that's the end of Israel. This is it. Now, I got to point this out. Um, I actually love what David Guzik said about this because I thought it was really profound. He says right here, this reminds us that judgment may not come at the height of sin. When God judges a nation or a culture, he has the big picture in view. For that reason, the actual events of judgment may come when things are not as bad in a relative sense. Here's why. This guy was an evil king. Not like all the other evil kings. His evil was different. The idea was like maybe he started actually going down a better path. Maybe he's like, I'm not going to serve Assyria. He was still evil, but not like the other kings. And I love how Guzik points this out, and I just want to point this out. He's saying, notice that. It's not at the height of their sin there's judgment. It's actually not at the height of their sin. Sometimes we do think that like maybe at the height of our sin, you'll be found out. There'll be judgment. It's not always at the height. Sometimes it might be like, oh, I think I got away. The, Israel, the nation of Israel, it's like, oh, we got away with a lot of sin. And we're actually Hoshea, Hosea, salvation. Maybe we're turning a corner. We're not going to worship the Assyrians. But still, this is when they fell into that trap. Listen, obviously, here's the idea too. Um, Hoshea, how ironic is that? Salvation, and yet they're destroyed salvation, and yet they're going to be literally taken captive by the Assyrians into foreign lands. Here's their salvation. Uh, I know it's, this is just how I wrote it. Uh, they don't need Hoshea. They need Yeshua, right? They don't need salvation. They need my God as salvation. They need, they need true salvation. He failed them in every way. Verse six, we'll keep going. It says this. We'll keep reading a longer section now. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Verse 7, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Verse 9, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their own towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there, there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. <laughs> Couldn't be more clear. Verse 13. Yet... The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and what I sent to you by my servant, the prophets. Verse 14, bear with me. I just wanted you to read the context. Verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. Oh, notice that. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. 
And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Verse 17. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. This is now giving us history. It's kind of like fast forwarding. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Verse 21. He, when, he had torn, when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Again, it's kind of just giving us an overall history. I hope you guys got that. You guys got that, right? Here's what's going on. He's saying this is the end of Israel. Why? They gave themselves over to the foreign gods. They walked after their customs. They did not fear God anymore, but they walked after the other customs. They forsook God. God said, do not serve idols. And that's exactly what they did. And I do want to break this down really quick. So there's a few things to point out. We have to learn from the story. The first thing right away that God says to them, he's like, this is what you did wrong. Look at verse seven. We'll put it up here. It says, the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I love what God is doing. God is basically saying, do you not remember who I am? I'm the guy that brought you out of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm the God that brought you out of bondage and gave you everything you needed to have a, a success in life. What are you, how did you so soon forget me and serve the gods of the land that you entered into? I drove out those gods. I drove out those people, and yet you, you adopted their gods. What are you doing? They were so quick, and this is, the, this is basically the storyline of the Old Testament. Bear with me. They're so quick to forget all that the Lord has done. I would say this, the greatest sin that the Old Testament really introduces to us time and time again is that we forget who God is. We have to understand this. A big part of the Christian life is just reminding ourselves and remembering who God is and what he's done. I cannot stress this enough. Their biggest sin, you could say, was forgetting. This is so important. We do this a lot. So often we forget who God is and what he's done. The sin they committed, he's like, don't you remember this God who brought you to the land of Egypt? How quickly do you forget all that I've done for you? They were so quick to forget. This is the, this is the point. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God warned them on this. Deuteronomy 4, it says, he says this, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. I love this. Notice this. There's like a responsibility on you. He goes, keep your soul diligently. How? He says, lest you forget. You need to, how do you keep your soul? Remember what God has done. If you forget, you actually are neglecting your soul. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget all that God has done for you. It's crazy. When I read the scriptures, what I see throughout the Old Testament is God is saying, why do you forget me? Why do you forget me? So often he's like, you forget who I am and what I've done. And you, you for, and here's the thing, I, just, I find this so true in my life. It is so easy for me to forget who God is and what he's done for me. I face something in my life. God helps me. God supports me. God strengthens me. God sends people. I'm like, God, thank you for that. I go through another season of trial or whatever it might be. And it's like, God, come on, where are you, man? And it's like, I forget God has been faithful time and time again. But we have this issue. All of us do. We have this forgetful issue. 
In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is speaking to Judah, which is about to commit the same error of sin. Listen to this. In Jeremiah 8, 15, this is what God says. Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols. God is diagnosing the problem. I want you to hear this. What is the problem with Israel? How did they fall into idolatry? God himself says, because they have forgotten me. They have served worthless idols. The greatest sin, it seems that you and I can forget, according to the Old Testament, it seems it could just be forgetting. Like forgetting. Forget not his promises. It's crazy how many scriptures, it's basically just trying to remind us. Peter even says, I'm just trying to remind you and stir up what God has done for you. I really do feel like part of, and why we gather, why do we gather, why do we do church, why do, what is this about? It's saying, let's remember Jesus. It's crazy that when Jesus was taking Passover with his disciples and he introduced what we do as communion, he introduced, hey, this is the blood of my covenant. My blood is shed for your forgiveness of sins. He goes, do this, drink this. What does he say? Drink this in remembrance of me in Luke 22. Do this in remembrance of me. I love, Jesus is saying, here's what you need to do when you gather. Remember me. Communion, gathering together believers, it's saying, my heart, which has been so divided and distracted and disillusioned with what life throws at me, maybe you're frustrated, you're angry, you're bitter, this week has been insane, and you come into church and you're like, oh yes, I need to remember that there is a God who's on the throne. There's a God who bore my suffering and my sin and my shame, and he's given me new life, and I need to remember Jesus, and I can so easily forget him or lose sight of what's really important here. And it's crazy how one of the things Jesus institutes to us is simply remembrance. He's like, Christians, one of the most important things you can do is remember. I wrote it down this way. One of the Christian sacraments is summarized by the word remember. This means one of the most important spiritual disciplines of a believer is to simply remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's crazy how people like complicate Christianity. Jesus is like, hey, want to know um, when you gather together, remember me. Remember me. Why did they serve worthless idols? God says, because they've forgotten me. See, right, right away, the author's trying to say, listen, they fell into the idol worship or they fell into worshiping other things above God because they simply forgot who God is. I, I can't encourage you enough. Listen, when you wake up and you read or you pray or throughout your day, when you try to spend time with God, a big part of what we're doing is re reminding yourself of the gospel. Like, remember, remember Jesus. Remember what he said. Remember what he's done. Like, oh yes, Jesus, even though I feel this way, you promised this. Even though my, the world is telling me one thing, you tell me this. A big part of what we do when we read or pray or worship, we're just remembering God's rightful place in our lives and in this world. Yes? It's one of the most important spiritual disciplines, and it's so simple. Remember. Remember. Because you and I are prone to forget. Uh, St. Benedict said this, never lose sight of God. Do not fall into forgetfulness. Do not fall into this trap, because we all do. So right away, God's like, hey, here's, here's where they went wrong. They forgot me. They forgot who I was. They forgot what I brought them out of. Verse 8 says this, they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the king of Israel had practiced. So now, not only are they forgetting, they're walking in the world's customs, they're ungrateful for what God has done. To put it this way, forgetfulness and ungratefulness are the attitudes that lead us down the path of idolatry. When you're forgetful or you're ungrateful for all that God has done, this is like the beginning, this is like the door being opened to lead your heart down this path of idolatry. You're forgetting God, you're ungrateful for God, you're walking down the world's customs, it says. We'll keep going. Verse 9, it says, The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. That is such an interesting phrase, obviously. Was it ever a secret? Like, was it ever a secret? The things they did secretly? No. 
it, this is so funny to me because I having children and like I literally see them like conspiring like sins and I'm like I can see you you know like nothing's secret like they whisper so loud like what if we don't do what mom and dad said I'm like I hear everything like what are you talking like nothing it's so funny how like they think we don't like just because they do this we can't hear now um and it's so funny we have the same heart and attitude I think towards the Lord which is like okay maybe he doesn't see this 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 spirit this attitude this action it's that they did secretly the things that displeased the Lord. Hebrews 4.13, know this verse. It says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of to him to whom we must give an account. Like nothing's hidden. And it's so sobering, that thought. And it's not, I, I, I gotta be clear with this too. It's not like God is in heaven just waiting for you to sin. I wanna be really clear on that. It's not like God's like, okay, what are they gonna do next? Gotcha. Like sometimes I, I, as a kid, I had this view of God. He just couldn't wait for me to sin. And I'm like, go graveling. God, please forgive me. It's crazy. You know, um, I just remember this, though, and this has been so life-changing for me. When I first had a kid, I became a weirdo. That's what happens, all right? When you have kids, you become weird. And one of the weird things I became and did is I had this kid, and all I when they go to sleep, I would just stare at it, <laughs> right? They're sleeping. I'm like, look at it. It's, it's sleeping. Like, and it's funny because as a parent, like, everything's amazing. It, no one else cares. No one else is amazed. I'm like, shh, the kid's doing something. Shush. And like, it's not even exciting. But when they're a baby and they're like, look at the mouth moved a little bit. The eyes kind of blinked. It's so fun at first. And then it hit me, this idea of like, it's not that God is looking at us, cannot wait for us to sin. It's like God is a father who just cannot keep his eyes off of us. And we have to see God in that light. We have to see God as a God who's in heaven going, it's not that I'm looking down and nothing's hidden or secret because I'm just waiting for you to sin. I think I had this like, God is Santa. Like he sees you when you're sleeping and they're like, oh my God. And God was terrifying to me in that way. And we have to see this, well, why is nothing secret? God is a father who loves us and can't keep his eyes off of us. It's just, I, I love you. I love to watch you. I like, care about you. God grieves over our sin. It's not like, oh, it's just there's a heart that breaks of like, I love you and care for you. I have, I have so much better for you. But they thought they could do secret things. It's so foolish. Verse 12 clearly says this, they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. I just love how clear the scriptures are sometimes. Then they go over to idols and God's like, I, I clearly said you shall not do this. Like, not, don't do that. That's what they did. Now I have to point this out because I'm trying to paint the picture of how bad Israel, like they fell into it, man. For a hundred years plus, they're like worshiping other gods outside of the God of Israel. Now here's the idea. Verse 13 to me is just the gospel. Verse 13 is what we see time and time again. What does verse 13 say? Look at this. Look down your verse or your Bible or see it up here. It says, yet. Everyone say yet. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I command your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophet. Here's what I see. They're walking away from God, offering up their own children, Committing, committing heinous sins, and yet the Lord is like, let me send you another prophet. Maybe you'll listen to this one. Maybe you'll respond to my message now. Maybe, maybe you'll hear me, my voice now. Maybe your heart won't be so hardened now. Here's what I see. I see God for a long time bear with their sinful acts, sending them Elijah in the north, Elisha, Abijah, Ahijah, all these different, pro God is sending them prophet after prophet after prophet, calling them to repentance, and they said, no, 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 we'll do what we want. Here's why I see a long-suffering, merciful God in the Old Testament. Like, we have to see that. I know we've talked about this kind of throughout the series, but I hope as we walk through this, maybe your view of God has been that. God is just some vindictive, angry God. This is not that profound, but you know this. I just want to make sure I say it clearly because I worded it this way. The enemy has done a great job marketing God as short-tempered and vindictive, when in reality, he is the most compassionate and gracious person in the universe. I think Satan does a really good job of saying, look at God. 
He's just always angry. He's so quick to wrath. He's so quick to punish. He's so quick to judge. He's just vindictive. He's just mad he's not getting worship. Look at, look at your God. I think Satan is a great marketer of that. I hear that a lot from the world. Look at your God. He's just so petty. What I see is a God for hundreds of years walking through this with him patiently. I'll send you another prophet. You kill that one, I'll send you another one. Time and just being patient and loving with them, and yet they still want to do their own thing. Second Peter 3.9 says it this way. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here's the God I see. God is not slow. God is, God, God, God is slow to grace and so slow to compassion in the sense that he's like, I, don't, I could judge you right away, but I'm not. I, I could punish you right away, but I'm not. What I see is a God who says, I desperately want you to repent. I just want you to repent and know me. I see God is so, he's not quick to judgment. He's quick to compassion. And he's walking through this with them and like, let me be slow. Let me show you grace and mercy. And yet still, still they rejected him. And we have to get this. In Ezekiel, as, they, as the Judah is walking from Israel over to Babylon, and Ezekiel the prophet is having these visions from God and he's speaking to them, one of the things he says, God's like, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, turn and live. We do not have some angry, vindictive God who's just waiting to pour out judgment. We have a loving, compassionate. When God revealed himself to Moses, he goes, Moses, I'm compassionate and merciful, long-suffering. This is the God you and I worship. We see this throughout the old and new. They were so wicked and evil, and God was patient and patient and patient. But listen, here's the point, obviously. Obviously, God, if he's going to be just, will have to punish sin. God is patient and merciful and loving, but he's also just. And there came a point in time, he's like, all right, I've tried this route with you, the prophet route leading you to repentance. Now I'm going to try this captive route. This is the time where actually the 10 tribes of the north are really, it's called like the lost 10 tribes. If you, if you know this, they're taken into Assyria, s- small run stays, intermarry with some of the Assyrians that come in, some of the Babylonians that come in. This is where we get the term Samaritans. If you remember Jesus at the well with the woman, you have the Samaritans. You have this in, in, in that story, like they're a, a breed of Jew and some other culture, mostly Assyrian. But this is, the, this is that story. This is where that happened. This is where now they're being taken, in, taken captive into the Assyrians' land, into other lands. This was brilliant strategy, by the way. This is what generals did. It was like, sometimes they had this idea of, I'll go in and conquer an army and just kind of leave soldiers there and try to maintain the peace. And people got smart after time and said, no, that's not going to work. I'm actually going to have to take their people away, really scatter them so they can't rise up and revolt. I'm going to put my own people on their land. And they, they kind of got smart with the strategy. This is what's happening here in 1 Kings 17. But God was just patient and patient. And it says in verse 14, but they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord. Verse 15, it says they despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers in the mornings. So he's like, God's like, I'm patient. They're stubborn. And then verse 15 said it this way again. They went after false idols and became false. This is fascinating to me. He's like, they became what they worshipped. The NLT puts it this way. It says, they worshipped worthless idols, so they became worthless themselves. They worshipped what was false, they became false. Really, the the Hebrew word seems to communicate, they worshipped vain things and they became vain. This is, they, they became what they worshiped. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, but we become what we behold. What it is you're taking in is eventually what you're going to copy and mimic and become like. We become what we behold. They're worshiping vain things, their life became vain. They're worshiping worthless things, their life became worthless. This is what the author's saying. You become what you behold. 
So you behold God, you take in God, watch beauty, watch joy, watch love, watch grace. You become what you behold. And this is what they're worshiping, vain idols. And it says they, became, they worship false things in, them, in so doing, they became false. Psalm 115.8 says, those who make them, the idols, become like them. So do all who trust in, in them. If what you make, you make, you become like. And it says this in verse 22, the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. So Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribe, of, the northern 10 tribes of Israel, he started off this legacy of walking away from God for 19 kings, same thing. Eventually, they're taken captive. Literally, hooks were put through their lips, naked, drawn through out of, out of Samaria, out of the northern tribes of Israel into Assyria. Just shamed, humiliated. So this is now like more history. We're going to read number two. Then this is why I want to see the history part of it, but they lack the fear of God. So we'll keep reading. How did they end? They loved idols. How did they end? They lacked the fear of God. If you would pick back up with me in verse 24. Verse 24, it says this, and the king of Assyria, he brought people from Babylon. This is before Babylon's like really Babylon. That'll take another hundred years. He brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So all these people now live where they lived. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Welcome to the Bible. Verse 26. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Wow, it's the first time they're actually doing Bible. Verse 29, and, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. Verse 30, the men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and these are great names. And the Suravites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech. And Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvim. Again, I'm so sorry. Just This is, bear with me. They also feared the Lord and, listen to that. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So, verse 33, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes of the rules of the law of the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandments that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. Verse 38, and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods. Again, but 
you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. Verse 41, so the nations feared the Lord and also served their own carved, carved images. Their children did likewise, their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. That is the end of Israel. Bear with me. I don't know if you saw in that text, you guys, but there's just so much. They did not fear the Lord because they did not fear the Lord. So what is going on? The king of Assyria says, let's go. You're being taken captive. I'm going to send my people to fill your land. So imagine that. Your house, you're taken from your house, you're taken from your land. Now new people move into your house, move into your garden. They're farming. They're taking your oxen. They're taking everything from you. There was a little bit of a remnant of Jews there, but mostly people from other nations going in. And then what's happening? Lions are eating the people. What's going on? By the way, you see this a lot in First and Second Kings. Uh, <clears throat> whenever you see a wicked person not obeying God, a lot of times, like this is the third occasion now, you see a lion go and eat them. They're like, uh, what's going on here? There's judgment falling on us. What do we do? Send a priest to follow the teachings of their God. So a priest goes. It is insane to me to think that they actually, at one point, they're serving their own gods. He made that really clear, but they're also serving this God, the true God, that you can't serve both. We'll, we'll get to that. But it's fascinating to me that a priest goes, it's like, hey, we should probably do this book for a little while. So they did that. It's so sad. The peak of spiritual life in Israel appears to be after they lost it all. This is like the only time we see any hint of Israel actually worshiping God. The only time. Granted, most of them are gone, taken captive. But it's so sad. Once they lost it all, now they begin to consider God. Once they lost it all, now they begin to consider God. Now there's all these other lands that are in there, all these other people that are in there taking their land, taking their oxen, taking, their far- taking everything they have. They're now taken captive. This is like that diaspora, the first one. This is why we call the 10 tribes of Israel the 10 lost tribes. Because in reality, we don't really know what happened. Some were taken off into foreign lands. Some remained and kept their like, Jewish belief or culture or customs. Many did not. That's why today, to, the, to this day, when you see Jews, they're most likely from Judah or Levite. Those are probably the tribes they're from, primarily. There might have been some 10 lost tribes that are incorporated with Judah. We do see that in the Chronicles. It says that, but it's a small handful. Meaning, where are these 10 tribes? Not really sure. The sad thing is, like, this had significant issues. Their future of just disobeying and walking away from God. The main thing it says over and over again is they did not fear God. I want to point out verse 33, and I just want this to sink in. Verse 33 says, They feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among them whom they had been carried away. Listen, to make this really clear, you cannot serve God and something else. This does not work. This is what obviously angered God to begin with. And they're, they're still doing this, and also the Assyrians are doing this. Is, now, you're like, why is this land holy? This land does seem to have some significance. Zechariah 2 talks about there's some significance in the land. There's some holiness to the land itself, God considers. But you cannot serve God in something else. God's like, this will not fly. This will not last. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this text. He says, let me be right, and let there be no mistake about it. But do not let me try to be both right and wrong, washed and filthy, white and black, a child of God and a child of Satan. The idea is you cannot be both. You cannot serve God and something else. Jesus said that. You cannot serve God and mammon. There is this binary idea with God of you cannot serve me and something else. It's either all me or not. The idea is this in Philippians. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's like, I have to be over everything. You can't have some fear of me and then also fear of these other gods. That's just not going to work. The author is trying to show you what they did, but he's trying to add commentary now. Here's the, I'm going to throw these verses, like five verses up here in a row. They did not fear God. Do we get this really clear? Look at, even though it says that, he shows the reality. Verse 34, we'll put the verses up here, all five. They do not fear the Lord. Verse 36, you shall fear the Lord, God says. Verse 37, you shall not fear other gods. Verse 38, you shall not fear other gods. Verse 39, you shall fear the Lord your God. 
What do you think God wants? God wants reverence. God wants this sense of, why do you not have the fear of me in your life? Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, 28. You fear man who can destroy the body. Fear God who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. He's basically saying, you fear the wrong thing. It's crazy how today we're trying to be manipulated into fearing everything that's going on around us except having the fear of God. I really do believe there's like this over-attention stimulation to fear this next issue, this next political thing, this, and we should fear, and here's the thing, we, have, we fear everything, but we don't fear God. The one thing that gives wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The one thing that gives knowledge is fearing Him above all else. My point of bringing this up is God is saying, listen, you want to know why they, they fell? You don't want to know why they came to an end? They loved idols and they did not fear me. They love idols and they did not fear me. Listen, there is a sense within, I think, the church in general, but specifically the American church, where there's a, kind of like this Jesus is my homeboy mentality, and we've lost this sense of, no, no, God is God and I'm not. And there should be a sense of humility. There should be a sense of healthy fear, of reverence, not this fear like God's going to get in a bad mood one day, but just God, God, you're, you spoke the universe into existence. Who am I? Woe is me when Isaiah saw God. Woe is me, for I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Like, there's this idea of, like, God, who am I in light of you? And yet God says, you're right. And yet, we're also made in the image of God, and God's like, you know what? I love you. I died for you. My son is living in you. My spirit dwells in you, and God gives us value and meaning and beauty. And, I, and this is what I love. There's this humility that the gospel shows you and I to fear God, and then there's this confidence, but it's not self It's confidence in Christ. It's confidence in who he is and what he's done. And so here's what we see. God's like, you want to know why they came to an end? They loved something more than me, and they stopped fearing me. And again, I love you guys. I love, I, I have so many conversations with so many wonderful people over the years. And when I see people begin to wander away from the faith, the things that breaks my heart is like, you love something more than God. And that's driving your heart away from me. Or number two, what I see is you stop fearing God. And you stop thinking of the reality of eternal life and death. And you stop forgetting the heaviness of what Jesus has rescued and saved us from. This is not to put fear into you, like to scare you out of hell and heaven, but this is to know the sobering reality as Jude talks about. The book of Jude talks about this idea of like, no, we should have a real sobering understanding of what God has, this eternal fire and torment God has saved us from. That is a healthy faith. God, thank you. Only you could do that. Again, when someone begins to abandon God, it's probably because they love something else or they stopped fearing him. This is the story of Israel. Here's the idea. And here's what we see. And I just want to end with a couple of thoughts and questions. John says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So random, so strange, so bizarre to me. It makes so much sense now. John's like, here's this little epistle all about love. And you're either going to love God or you're going to love an idol. You're going to love and worship God or love and worship something else. So the question, obviously, it begs the question that we have to spend some time and sit in. Um, who or what right now are you worshiping? Are you giving ultimate value over to? What is it that you are living for? What is it that if it were taken away from you, you feel like your life would be over? That probably is a true reflection of your, your one true God. Here's the thing, church. If we can learn from the story of Israel, because we're done with the northern tribe, now we're going to just have a few weeks left of looking at the southern tribe of Judah. They fell. They, they're gone. They're taken captive. Why? They forgot God. They loved idols. They forgot God, and they stopped fearing God. So what is it that you are currently worshiping? What is it that you're currently putting above God? Here's the thing. This is bizarre to me, because when you read this text, there's not a lot of hope. It just ends sad. Like, let's be honest. First Kings 17, ugh. Down, like, that was not like, yes, I cannot wait to teach them. It's just sad. Like, all right, they're taking slaves. There's like hooks put through their mouths and noses, and they're, you know, slaves in Assyria at the end. All right, let's move on to Judah. It's just, it's so sad. We have to learn from this, though. 
Because the point is all of us, all of us will face an end, but what will our end be? Will we learn from them or will we just go continue in their path? We have to learn from this. We have to. Hoshea, salvation, was not their salvation. Obviously, the point is we need Yeshua. The point of, of the prophets and kings is always to create this longing for the one true prophet or the one true king. Yes, Hoshea, he failed the people miserably, but Yeshua, my God, is my salvation. No, he will not fail them. This creates a longing for the one true king. So who, who or what are you worshiping? I just want to, can we do this for a second? We're going to end with worship right now. But I want to put some verses or some questions up here, and I just want you to like think through this. We're going to walk through this slowly. Just, if we could quietly just look up here. Simple questions to examine your heart and just identify with the Lord. Who do you love the most? Or what do you love the most? What is your supreme love? Who or what do you fear the most? What do you fear the most? What's the worst case scenario? That's a good indicator of what you worship. Do you have a functional savior? Something that you turn to in times of trouble. You say God is your God, but when things really get bad, you turn to this functional savior. It's a drink. It's a website. It's a person. What is that thing you turn to for saving? Who or what do you make sacrifices for? Hey, I'm willing to give it up for this, but not for God. I'm willing to make this sacrifice for this person, this thing, this job, this career, my family. I'm willing to give this sacrifice, but not for God. Who or what do you make sacrifices for? And then who or what do you give to the most? Like, what do you get? What, where, where's your time, your, your energy, your resources? What are you giving to the most? That might be the thing you worship. The point of some of these questions is just, I want to sit in this a little bit. I want us to learn from 1 Kings 17 and be like, this is their end, but it does not have to be our end. They had Hoshea, we have Yeshua. <laughs> they had a king that failed, and we have a king that will not fail us. Our heart is still, just like them, very divided. We try to serve God and something else. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Listen, I would just say this today. Um, if you're serving God and something else, give up that something else. If you feel like something has taken the place of Jesus in your life, surrender that today. If there's something that you're just like giving yourself over to, it's not worth it. Commit yourself fully to Jesus. There is this exclusive claim from Jesus. He's like, you're either for me or you're against me. This whole half-hearted thing that we've done for a long time in the church, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, it leaves everyone miserable in the process. Here's what I'm going to ask. I want to worship. I want to sing. I want to make melody in your hearts. Yes. This doesn't just have to be sad and somber, but here's the idea. I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, there has been something that's been taking your place in my life. There's something that's been way more important to me than you, and, and I just need to surrender that now. I want to give that over now. I want to say, Jesus, be your right. You're, you're the one true king. You're the Yeshua. You're the king that we've been looking for. So why don't you guys do this? Why don't you just bow your head, close your eyes. These questions up here, think through them. Talk them over with the Lord. I'm going to be quiet for a little bit. I'll pray, but then we'll worship. But just be quiet before the Lord. Say, Lord, search me, know me. Where is my heart divided? Do I have a functional savior? Do I have something I'm turning to? Do I actually turn to you? Just take some time and talk it over with the Lord.